Hello, I'm Devil Sangvi, and this is No Cost Extension. My guest today is Yasmin Madan, the Director of Philanthropic Collaboration at CoImpact. In this role, Yasmin fosters relationships with funders. She has over two decades of experience working across health, education, and livelihoods in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Good morning, Yasmin. Hi, Deva. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you. Great. So, Yasmin, first of all, thank you again for joining this call. I think the last time we met was in New York during the start of UN General Assembly Week. And we were invited to a small roundtable, I would say, or a workshop with other social sector leaders. And I think a lot of the conversation, in fact, that we were having that day in New York with Echoing Green and Skull Foundation, who hosted this gathering, I think was, is really pertinent to share with our listeners. And I say that because I think as the social sector, there are times where we gravitate to a particular solution or intervention and that becomes the holy grail. And I think that unfortunately in development, and you know this better than anyone, there's no such a thing as a silver bullet answer. There's no such a thing as a holy grail. And I think a lot of the conversations we had that day was around how other sort of aspects around the development sector have taken sort of a spotlight and then everyone runs towards that spotlight. But to begin with, I really wanted for myself and the listeners to understand your personal story. I mean, you're originally from Pune, you live in DC now, you work with Co-Impact. How did that come about? I grew up in Pune. I went to a business school. I actually wanted to do communications, but the way the application process in India works, if you get called by one of the top business schools in India, you don't say no. So I studied in Ahmedabad for two years. And then you, I did what everybody does, you know, started a private sector job with what was then SmithKline Beecham, is now Blackso SmithKline, doing Horlicks, Aquafresh, the typical marketing work, and really got to know India because for the first six months, they post you in all these places where they want you to be a sales rep. So I was in the Bardwan coal mine district trying to sell Horlicks to people. Three years into it, I thought there was more to life than profit and market share and making money. And I really wanted to do communications. So I went to film school in Boston. And then I was looking to do work internationally with communications using my marketing skills. And I found this large not-for-profit PSI, Population Services International, and spent years with them then in Zimbabwe. I was then in Vietnam running our country program. I was then in Cambodia for four years running the country program, working across HIV, malaria, reproductive health, sanitation, cervical cancer, right? The whole range of issues. But what struck me was we were doing solutions, including behavior change communications, empowering individuals without changing the system. And having grown up in India, I think the onus of change cannot be put on the individual. We have to change systems. Individuals are very powerful but the systems determine our behaviors, right? So for me, I thought there was more and I went into health financing for two years working on national insurance programs because a lot of health, we're still expecting people in the global south to be out of pocket. And then I remember I was on LinkedIn and I found Co-Impact and it said, we wanna invest in systems change. And I never heard that explicitly said. And so I sent in my CV on LinkedIn which again, I don't think is exactly the way I would recommend looking for a job. 
and I got a response. And I, I've always said this, it felt like coming home to me at Colmac, right? The focus on systems change, the focus on bringing community of philanthropists and program partners, social change leaders together, and saying that philanthropy can do more and we can actually solve things at the scale of the problem if we engage in systems. For me, that was like homecoming. That is amazing. I didn't realize you were a film major. <laughs> Did you make any movies or documentaries? So exciting, Yasmin. Exactly. You can only call yourself a writer if you've written a book, right? And a runner if you've done a few miles. So no, I did. I mean, I did projects, but I was in it more for how do you tell stories of people's lives that do justice to it? And so the documentary format took. But I think being in that film industry was not for me. No, no, that's actually amazing because I think, I mean, one of the reasons of starting this podcast as well was to sort of, you know, bring stories out to people. I think we are so fortunate, like you said earlier, of being in a sector where we're around such amazing individuals and learn from each other, I would say. And and and, and I guess from that, the gathering we attended, uh, I thought was so critical and unique. Um, for those of the listeners who don't know, each year during the UN General Assembly Week in New York, the sort of global NGO sector comes together, if I can call it that. And, and in the start of this particular UN General Assembly Week, Skoll and Eglin Green Foundation put together a roundtable uh, where Yasmin, myself, and 20 other leaders were sort of speaking about the, the sector. And, and Yasmin, if you can maybe shine a spotlight a little bit on, on what was discussed at that, what resonated with you, and, and then we can maybe go into some of those details, both positives as well as negatives of the sector as we see it? I mean, it was called social innovation, right? That was the topic. And what struck me is what was discussed was how do we understand innovation? And I think historically, and because of some of the influence of the private sector, disruption has been seen as innovation. If you come in and you know, change the rules of the game, which need changing, but in a disruptive way. And it is an individual who has a bright idea that's been seen as innovation. And actually what we've learned, the entire sector, is you need more coordination and collaboration and orchestration. But once you say those words, they don't sound as sexy as disruption. And so they're not seen as innovation, right? And how do we, I thought a lot of the discussion was how do we take back that concept that it's about one person or it's about one idea that disrupts and suddenly that's it. All you needed was this idea and now things are solved. And actually the ideas and the people are there. Somebody needs to, not someone, but some groups need to coordinate. Ask them how they collaborate. Ask them how they are actually what we call a calling systems orchestrators. I love that we've even coined this term now and that's the one thing. The second thing that struck me is measurement matters. It absolutely matters, right? How do you know you did better than where you started? How do you know when to pivot? How do you know you're making a difference? But I think the metric of success need to be rethought. Again, they've been historically defined in ways that have made it easy to measure and attribute. And once they become more complex to measure and it's about contribution, then we start saying there aren't any metrics. So that was the second thing. And the third just was, I think you can sometimes feel hopeless, but when enough people come together and you start exchanging ideas, you realize actually there's power in coming together. 
No, no, that's true. And I think in talking about measurement, at least one of the small groups that I was part of, the conversation led to around not just attribution versus contribution. And for the listeners who haven't heard this terminology, I think in my basic, very simple and perhaps inaccurate way of defining this is attribution is when you can say, for example, as a donor or as an NGO, my money or my intervention did A, B, and C. Contribution is when you're saying I contributed to something that may have gone to A, B, and C, but also D, E, and F. And I guess from that perspective, I feel a lot of more experienced NGO leaders as well as funders are realizing that this attribution versus contribution at times can be paralyzing for the sector as a whole. Because donors want to at times say, well, my dollar has to go here and I have to track it. And no one at all is saying you don't track expenses and you don't have audited accounts and you don't do anything that's fraudulent. All of that is very much there. But to actually say that my intervention is what solved X cause of poverty over a seven-year period and not sort of look at what government has done, what private sector has done, what community themselves have done in this process is difficult. And I think changing that mindset is hard for donors and at times hard for NGO leaders. And I think that, to your point, is the crux of systems change. And, And maybe if you could explain a little bit about, you know, again, people perhaps understand what an NGO leader does in terms of starting an organization running eight schools, educating those children. What does it mean to sort of do that, but also then look at a system, the education system, for example? Yeah, and I thank you for explaining the attribution contribution so clearly. And I think it's one more way it manifests, right? So I have seen funders say, I care about outcomes. So you have a funder who's interested in the health sector say, I care about health outcomes. And that is, you cannot disagree with that statement, right? It's such a powerful statement. It's like saying customer is king. Who's going to disagree with it? But what that could mean then is for me to get health outcomes as a funder, I'm going to then have an implementer, right? A vendor who's going to help me get that. And they're going to get those outcomes. But actually as funders, what we need to say is I care about the organization. The organization needs to say, I care about the system working. And the system needs to say, it's my mandate to serve the people, to get these outcomes. And if you bypass that, if we as funders bypass our focus on the organizations, the organizations focusing on the systems and the system serving the people, we can get to outcomes, but that's not a very sustained way of getting to it, right? So if I want education outcomes and I start my own school, I can, of course, get education outcomes and I can get a few NGOs to work for it, right? And give me an exact implementation plan. But that's not their vision and that's not what they know needs correcting. The education system is letting people down. Today, when a girl walks into an education system in India, does it give her a full chance at an education? Or does it actually, I don't know, her parents don't value it. It's risky walking to school. And the teachers are gender biased. There's a bit of violence when she engages with the boys. Right, So the the system is letting her down and we need to care about that in that spirit of outcome. So that system's changed to me. These systems of just basic health, education, economic opportunity are supposed to serve the people, but they don't. They don't do it in inclusive ways. They don't do it in, in effective ways sometimes. And I think instead of 
creating oasis of good programming to compensate for those systems not working, philanthropy needs to activate those systems, right? Actually focus on why aren't they working? There's genuine issues. It's not like they don't want to. I think there's genuine problems in the system that we need to focus on so that in the long run, the system is serving its people. Again, when you're looking at a system where, to the way you've just described it, it's the donor, it's the NGO, it's the system itself. So there are multiple actors that are part of this. And those actors, I'm assuming, change quite often, given elections and terms. And even, I mean, I know, again, and you've seen this as well, many times even when foundations give a grant within a year or two, for whatever reason, there may be leadership change or something you know, has happened in the world, which means their strategy also shifts. And so when, when you're bringing so many sort of different groups together and they each have their own, I would say, individual pressures or externalities, how does one grapple with that? And what does it take, I guess, to be a good systems change funder? So we're learning, I think, at Co-Impact quite a bit. And again, I think to unpack this, First, the focus is the North Star, in a way, is the system doing what it's meant to do. So you take a health system, you know, you take a country like Liberia, we're supporting the work of Last Mile Health. Are people getting high-quality primary healthcare services, right? And if they're not, through the facilities, is there a community health system that helps them get that? So the North Star is that the system needs to deliver these services. Then you come to... All the actors, I think, then are orienting towards this North Star, whether that is the government, right, the Ministry of Health or the Community Health Services Division, whether that is an organization like Last Mile Health, or whether they are funders like Co-Impact and many others who are investing in this. That is an easy alignment of what do we want? We want people to have universal health coverage. That means, you're right, quality primary health care services provided by the government in a way that is universal, it's for the people. It's not for a small group of people we decide to focus on, right? That means the last of the last mile, it, that's what we mean by universal. So when you do that kind of thinking, I think the various actors then are facing in the same direction towards the same goal. So that variety of actors actually then becomes a strength rather than a weakness of pulling in different directions. If this NGO says, I know how to solve the problem, you know, I'm going to hire these health workers who are going to go out and do this. And this NGO says, no, no, I'm actually going to build facilities and try and solve this problem. If you're each pulling in a different direction, then that's when it becomes multiple actors and a complexity. But if you're all pulling in that same direction of making that system work, it actually becomes easier to have the more diversity you have than of actors, the more richer the whole fabric and the picture becomes. I know there's an organization that we've worked very closely with that you also supported, Lende and India, and Sunanda and Raj Gilda. And I remember when they started out, I guess in the mid sort of 2005, six is when Sunanda first moved there. And then I know when Raj was still in New York at the time, we worked with him in terms of him attending one of the leadership programs that we ran in 2009. And at that stage, I remember they were working in a few different government schools, focusing on vocational training for children to ideally not drop out of school, but continue to school and sort of partake in in I guess, secondary education in more technical skills that were involved in the area. So kind of like a 
community college or in India, we have ITIs. And so it's sort of bridging children not to drop out of school and to attend these ITIs. Can you give us a little sense of some of the shifts that you saw maybe with Lend a Hand India and how they were already sort of focusing on systems, I guess, even before Coimpact came in? No, absolutely. So, you know, there are a couple of ways we've seen how civil society leaders work on systems change. One is this, that they are embedded in the system the way Lender Hand India is, and they're doing what it takes to make the system work, right? So they're already there. And I'll talk a little bit more about their approach. Then you have others who've seen something work, tried it, and are now wanting that system to adopt it, right? And we've seen a lot of those models as well, that after you get to a point, it's not about linear scaling. Of what you're trying to do, it's about then getting it scaled through that system. Because in a way, the infrastructure exists, right? It's about activating it. And then the third, I think, is how do you actually have government involved? And this I've typically seen when it's a market system thing, where the service provider can be private sector, but the government provides that mandate and the overarching stewardship and the right context, the enabling context to allow the market system to do what it does. So there's different models of system. I'm, I'm making a, a rough categorization here. The thing about Lender Hand India that struck us, and I think it's so much to Raj and Sunanda's vision, was education was not working, right? Before we even get into technical, the promise of education is that it will help you fulfill the value you can provide society. And I don't mean that in just a monetary way. They genuinely talk about citizens of India and the education system wasn't doing that. And when it wasn't, people drop out because the promise is in that social contract people have of I'll go to school, I'll get the skills I need, life skills and skills for employment. And that doesn't come through. And it's so hard to get to school for certain income groups that they were then dropping out. And so they started solving for dropout, but to me, they're solving for the promise of education. Right? And again, they could have gone and done this themselves. Actually, if you visit their training center in Pune, it is remarkable what they could do directly, right? the quality of what they do. And when you talk to students who've been through that, it's amazing how life-changing it can be. And that can happen. You can see a few lives change and you can say, let me scale this model. But actually, there are these thousands and thousands and thousands of schools and thousands and thousands and thousands of teachers and an incredible Department of Education budget that no funder can ever match, right, for India. Then you ask, how do I actually make all of that now work? And that's what they're doing at Lend Hand India. They figured out what's needed. They know the promise is failing, but they're getting the system to fulfill that promise rather than doing it themselves. And what we saw with them is that their ability to really think at scale then even within that, right? So they've been very successful in Maharashtra and they were getting requests from other states. And I think what we then shifted to because that organization was so aligned is, are they also investing in their own organization? And I want to take a moment on this table because as funders, you can see a solution and you want to scale that. And sure, you can even buy into that the government should scale it, right? But do you pause and say that actually it's the organization that now needs that focus? And Lender Hat India needed to invest in themselves, in their own organization strengthening, in their second tier of leadership, in their board diversity. These things matter. They're not superfluous to achieving outcomes. 
they are like the most important ingredient to achieving outcomes we spend quite a bit of time with them raj and sunanda are they getting a moment's break right as social change leaders who had a vision years ago are we actually giving them that break that second tier leadership is and how are we as funders signaling that this matters so it wasn't just i think they were actually well on their way for systems change i think it was also just what is possible nationally and what is needed for your organization was so important for us to focus on i mean to your point it's unfortunate but in the business world everyone firmly believes the strong need of management the institutional framework and the backbone is critical at times more critical than any ceo ever is because the institution will outlast any individual or group of individuals yet in the ngo world to your point most donors don't focus on this they have a very myopic view on what needs to be done again they focus on just one element of an intervention and that too usually not for the period of time it takes for the intervention to actually take place and so it's amazing that you all came in and said we will actually help lend a hand india just to support themselves because if they're strong what they do with various states across the country are so critical and and that's probably one of the most catalytic investments anyone can make because your investment in what was probably one-tenth, if even that much, of their five-year budget, for example. Yet that was the machinery behind Lende and India. Yeah, and I just want to add that too. I've also heard you make this point, and I really respect Dasra for it. So we did commit to a five-year funding, right? And we hope a substantial funding, and we know that it is flexible funding. That means as their strategy will change, they can pivot to what is needed and responsive to the system. But we also spent a year, we do this thing at Co-Impact called the design grant. So the way they were selected and our initial you know, sourcing used to happen, thousands of applications, we bring that down and we do about 10 or 20 grants a year. Now we're moving to more referral-based sourcing. So everybody gets selected, right? It's the, you get these top 10, 20 organizations, and then we say to them, excellent, now take a year, year zero, and go back. Go back to the problem analysis. Go back to the systems analysis. Go back to what is needed, not what you've been doing. And then think about what do you need to do. So the starting point isn't what you've been doing. The starting point is what is needed and what do you need to do and what organization do you want for it. So we spent about 12 plus months with this. And then at the end, we said, this is your strategy now, right? Now we will buy into that strategy. And when does a funder say that? I'm not saying it just because Co-Impact does it, but I think it's what's needed in the sector. How do we get behind the strategy of the organization and all funders align towards that strategy rather than pull them in many directions? And going back, we call it strategic cohesion. And it seems like a nebulous concept. Just think about this. If a funder A, this is the priority and I'm delivering on this proposal. Funder B, I'm delivering on that proposal. I come to my desk as a social change leader. I've got 10 proposals, 10 things I'm delivering on. How is it possible to actually solve the problem? But if I know, if I have this resolute focus on what needs to be done, and I know that I'm going to be able to do it with the organization, then how do funders actually get behind that longer term, right? So it's this concept of long-term funding, flexible funding, but it's the most crucial concept is in support of the vision of the organization that is holding the system as its not staff. 
I think as funders, and again, in the for-profit world, you don't see this, no investor who is, let's say, 5 or 10 or even 20% of an organization's budget decides exactly what that entity or company does. That doesn't exist. But in the NGO world, for whatever reason, and we know the reason, it's power and privilege and, and those dynamics which play a significant role in donors feeling that they're doing the favor versus actually it's the community who's lifting themselves out of poverty that's doing all of us a favor, let's be very clear. Not really the NGO, definitely not the donor, but when that dynamic changes, donors feel that their point of view is actually the only way funds can be dispersed. It very much changes from a point of view to a mandate or multiple strings attached. And to your point, that's when any organization who has, and I'm using now business terminology, but if you're an NGO and you have 10, you know, foundations supporting you or investors, and every investor has their own way of doing things, and it's not a point of view, more strings attached, then you're actually running 10 different organizations within one and you're getting nowhere. But outcomes can be met <laughs> in that process. Exactly. That's what I'm saying, that measure of outcomes. So people level outcomes with this population level impact, like what changed in the person's life matters. That's so important. That's why we all wake up. But then we say, what are the system level outcomes? What changed in the system for that person's life to become better, right? What was that? Was it today that the data is being used better in the district area? So all these women who've been invisible in the rural areas become visible to the government system? Like it could be, it, right? You could make that link. And then we ask, what is the organization level? How have you become stronger, more diverse, deeper as an organization? And we ask for all three levels of outcomes for that simple logic of if the organization is stronger, the system becomes stronger, people will be served better. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember, and again, this is something we had learned in 2000 from New Profit Inc. using, I think it was the Kaplan balance scorecard methodology. And I remember back then at least implementing a version of that where a large part of our focus was, like you just said, the institutional building aspect of an organization, realizing that if you do that well, the rest will actually flow through. If there are good feedback mechanisms, if there's good a management team, if there's strong finance and compliance, governance, board, I mean, these are the areas that we initially, you know, in 99 even said, let's focus on these areas because we saw that there was a gap, number one, that most donors did not want to fund this. Again, through the very few years that Nir and I had in the business world, we realized it's all about the management team. And so that's really a core focus. And I guess the third point too, that we honestly didn't have much money. And so it was like, if you don't have much money, then why don't you sort of focus on teaching an organization how to fish? Because they will be able to do far more than if you were saying, look, everything I give will satisfy all of your budgets, et cetera. And, and so the views today about collaboration and how that's so needed, but I feel it's taken other donors a long time to even get there. And while Cohen Back is a great example of multiple large donors that have come in and collaborated on a particular platform, I feel still there's a lot more rhetoric around collaboration, especially on the donor side versus actual action. No, absolutely. I think Dasra sitting on so much experience on this. It's a couple of things, right? We start with things we've taken from the private sector that are in a way good, but one has to keep questioning whether they work, which is value proposition. Right? So if we ask someone, what's your value proposition? Why are you different? 
tell me why I should fund you and not someone else, you have now just asked three questions that actually require them not to collaborate <laughs> because they have to distinguish themselves, they have to say something unique about them, and they have to prove to you that they're better than someone else. So the way we ask these harmless questions actually requires this person to say, wait a minute, let me differentiate from myself from the crowd. And Olivia says this so brilliantly, Olivia is the founder and CEO of Coimpact. She gets asked by funders, how are you different, right? What is unique about it? And she's like, actually ask me how I collaborate. How do I coordinate? How do I show up in community? And so can we as funders ask different questions? And that's why when we started this conversation, David, I was saying that idea about orchestrator over disruptor. Everybody's agreeing the rules of the game have to change, but they can change with coordination. They don't have to change with disruption. I think is right. They can change with just people. Actually, more people coming together distributes power rather than one disruptor coming and then shifting power in his or her direction, which is what we tend to see. So that's one, I think, big one for me. I think the second then is that same signaling to our organizations, right? So when we say do a systems analysis, I think, again, I, I want to take an example of Breakthrough, a remarkable organization doing work in India, right? Just such a feminist organization that is trying to change gender norms through media and through their education programs. And they have a curriculum that was randomized control trials have been done to show it shifts gender norms. And so when they came to the design phase with Co-Impact, the question for them also was, would you scale this curriculum and how far will that go given the number of schools in India? Or do you actually figure out what is happening in the system and now what works of this, right? So that question of what needs to be done and breakthrough mapped the system from the curriculum development to the pedagogy to other organizations working on parent-teacher associations to school management committees, right? They mapped the system and they said, we know how to do a curriculum. There are existing curriculum, whether that's for social science or for something else. How do we embed that into this? And so now they're going pan Orissa, pan you know, Punjab with their approach that has been embedded and then coordinating with other partners. That is so much more powerful right? than saying, here it is, I've got a gold standard curriculum. I'm now going to go for it. That shift, that breakthrough made in their thinking in the design phase of collaborating. So that's what I've just wanted to link, ask the right questions, send the right signals. And actually, if we can just do that as funders, the answers are there and we have to trust the organizations and then give them time and enough money and space. But what are some of the gaps that exist with donors? I mean, what can donors do to improve and make some shifts and strides? And what are some issues that you see in the funding environment? Because there's, again, no NGO, no donor, no government that does everything perfect. So in no way should we sit on a pedestal or even, you know, thus or made multiple mistakes and continue to. So in no way am I saying thus is perfect. But I'm saying that there are issues that exist in this sector that we have to talk about openly. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm more than happy to then taking off that hat because before coming to Coimpact, as I said, I spent 20 years on the other side, right? Getting funding from multiple donors, running country programs in different countries and contexts across different issue areas, working with private and public systems. So from that, I think the first is what I was saying. We care about outcomes 
but you have to realize that actually people become social change leaders and they start organizations and people join those organizations because they want to solve this problem. So we as funders don't have to come along and then remind them that outcomes matter and remind them that trust and diligence and rigor matters. And we don't have to remind them that project plans matter. <laughs> they dedicated their lives to doing this. So just that shift in perspective is sometimes I still have funders ask me really hard questions. And I thought, why do you think I gave up my private sector job to do this? Like, until you came along, do you think I didn't realize that I need right, learning and evaluation plan? So it's just for starting with recognizing people come into this sector very deliberately and intentionally and, you know, sacrifice parts of their life to do this. So because there is this, we have an obligation to the resources we're allocating. And how does one, you know, fulfill that obligation and the way it can get interpreted is risk management and ensuring that there's return for the money, right? Even if that return is impact. And again, all of these great concepts we've taken from the private sector, but what they do is then they put the locus of control on your side of the table, not on the other side of the table. So we can say it matters. It's a, we all have a moral obligation to impact and to scale, right? We've taken resources and we want them to work as effectively as possible. And asking those questions, allowing the social change leaders to have the answers, I think is much better than holding that responsibility in a way at the funder level. And I think the last is this, I do think we now have just enough evidence that it's multi-year and it's long-term and it's flexible. I mean, these work. So how about we just start there rather than single-year restrictive project-based funding? No, thank you. I mean, I think, I mean, in one of the initiatives that we run in Dasra, the Rebuild India Fund, we're supporting proximate leaders. The mindset is actually that where it's five years of unrestricted funding. We are helping the organizations use those funds to build their own capacities and not use for program expenses. I mean, one of the NGO leaders, for example, has been sitting on the year one grant for nine months. And I just happened to be in a conversation with him and he was saying he's so scared that he may make a mistake on how he uses the money. And to your point, this is not a results framework that these individuals have operated on and for somebody who is really scared about making a wrong investment decision, again, in investing in software for the organization or mental well-being, an accounts manager, it's shocking, again, how much pressure the sector, and I do blame myself, at least blame donors for this pressure, in making you know these NGO leaders feel like they're always on edge or like they're doing something wrong, when reality is they've been actually at this far before most of the donors have been at this. Exactly, exactly. And you know, I do want to add one more thing to that. Of When you said scared and not, I think it's this question also of data and measurement, right? And I think... We really have to question, we really do from a philosophical perspective, who does the data belong to? Today, there's an assumption the data belongs to the person who paid for the work, right? It belongs to the founder. And that's how data is collected, let's be honest, including data for the government. They pay for it centrally or at the state level, so the data goes back to them. The data doesn't belong to the person who generated it. Data doesn't belong to the person who collected it. And the data certainly doesn't belong to then the person who has to package it and send it up, right? 
And I just think that's one of the biggest mistakes in development we're making today. We heard yesterday from our partner, Arman, of the database in India, how they're helping strengthen that so that at the block level, at the district level, decisions can be taken. And so that women who've been invisible become visible. And not just for health services, but actually for much larger benefits, because once they're in that database, and that whole story of data made me realize how critical it was that that data generates and stays there. If they don't send it to us as a funder, does that really matter, right? Now, measurement matters, outcomes matter, don't get me wrong. But it's this, who does it inherently belong to and who gets prioritized in it, I think is one of the things funders can certainly do a little bit better on. No, no. Again, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's shocking that, again, that this sector has clearly been around forever. And yet such inefficiencies exist and such trust dynamics don't sort of play a role in terms of, again, realizing to your earlier point, these NGOs have been doing this well before any donor came along. And last time I checked, most of the donors in this world waited till they made a million or a billion to start giving. And yet they're the ones who claim urgent and urgency is something they care about. I'm like, but these NGO leaders at the age of 18 started their work. They, they weren't you know, financially sustainable. They weren't sort of waiting till their kids went off to college. They weren't waiting till different time of life. Yet we as donors at times say, oh, well, how come they're not being urgent? And you're like, but they've been focusing on this for 20 years. You just came in a year ago. Yeah, exactly. The whole reason Olivia set up the collaborative model was we genuinely saw the strength in funding community, funding partners coming together with what we don't call them grantees, because I don't think the identity of an organization is the fact that they received a grant, right? We call them program partners, because we're in partnership with them. But if we play to each other's strengths, I think if funders say, oh, I need to take responsibility for what their work is, then you're not actually playing to what your strength is, right? So I actually think there's a lot of strength in funders and partners coming together, program partners, I just think we have to know what each other's role is, which is the mistake, right? So the idea isn't keep them away. The idea is actually come together in community, but play to your strengths. But to your point, I think that same logic, surprisingly, hasn't really played a big role, at least in my mind, to most givers across the world. And I think that's the sad part, because I think the issues that we have in front of us are far greater than we could have ever imagined. And this is where I think also... To your point, you know, you've talked about the enormity of the issues a few times, right, Devlin? I think this is what I mean by the moral obligation to scale. So scale isn't, oh, you were doing 100,000, can I now see you do 200,000, or can I see you do a million? The scale is starting with that denominator, the enormity, and its texture. Who is actually getting left behind? Who is getting it much worse than anybody else? And then say, how are we solving towards that? It's also a little bit of shift on when we say enormity of the problem, and then the urgency comes down to, well, let's do more of what this we think is working here, right? It's such a simple slippery slope to get into. Problem is so enormous. Okay, now I need to go into scaling. But I think the issue is, no, 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 problem, that's the denominator. Now everything you do has to add up on that numerator, and then you measure yourself against that, not against your historical numbers. 
And I think that's why, you know, the design grant, for example, that you and others also give is so critical. And that's where, again, we started our journey with Raj and Sunanda from Lend a Hand India was through the Dust for Social Impact sort of program, which was a four-week leadership program where one week every quarter, all of these NGO leaders come together. And really the goal was, though, by the end of it, is that they have plans that they believe in, that they've thought through, that they've had their peer group sort of challenge but but also giving them a week away every quarter from day-to-day -day operations to be able to say, okay, well, we've actually accomplished so much. Now, how do we do things differently? And I think that's so, so critical. And, you know, NGOs as well as donors, both, I guess, at times fall into this trap of, oh, well, I have to do the same thing over and over again, just faster. And you're like, but that's not number one, efficient. Number two, it's not reaching economies of scale. And number three, in no way does it mean what you've done in the past was incorrect. You have to do that to get to this level. But now that, for example, you are in government offices, working closely with them, have built that sort of credibility and know-how, then your work can change and should change from being a direct implementer 100% of your time. Again, that innovation lab is needed. No one will question it, but that can maybe be eight to 10% of what you do, not 80 to 90% of what you do. But I feel like that shift also requires, again, an NGO leader and a donor to say, look, let's create that blank slate. Let's think about what is the blue sky vision today. And again, every company in the world will have a strategic plan and shift every three to five years, but we don't enable our NGOs to do the same. Exactly. And I think, you know, you started the conversation with our social innovation meeting, right? With, with Skoll and Echo in Green. And if you remember, that was one of the issues. How do you show innovation in this kind of work? This is the problem, right? It's so easy to show innovation in that direct work. We even call it that. But the innovation it takes to embed that into a larger system then becomes harder, right? So Last Mile Health was sharing with us that when they show up in support, when they show up, right, in helping others or in helping the government or even global financing, you know, structures work, how do they actually tell that story? Because that's not seen as innovative enough or it's not seen as, well, this is what others were doing, right? So just looking behind that, how we've historically defined social innovation and asking ourselves, can we start telling the stories differently of what innovation means? Yeah, no, and it's sad, but just working together itself, it's innovative. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, gosh, in just this call, you've shared so much of what Dasra did and how, right, you, you helped. And I'm glad you had that time with Lender Hand India for them to think about their strategy and what needs to be done. And then when we, you know, joined their journey, that time was created again, because it's not like a once and done is also what I heard you say, right? It's not like I did my strategy, now I can. The team changes, the context. I mean, Lender Hand India, I remember talking to them through the whole COVID phase. When education was the last thing on anybody's mind, because the response, particularly in India, was right going towards the health system. But then how do you come out of it when there's been such an impact on people's livelihoods and people who've just dropped out of school because of COVID reasons? So they had to revisit, I think, some of their strategies and work. Yeah, no, and in fact, we've sort of, I'd be shocked if there's any NGO or business for that matter that's operating the same today as they were in 2019. Because if they are, that means they've really missed the boat and they haven't realized that things have to be different. 
And it doesn't mean that everyone tomorrow starts working from home and, you know, that's not the shift I'm talking about, but there has to be strategic core sort of shifts that you've made, especially, I think, as an NGO, given the communities you serve, at least in the Indian context, you know, we're probably 10 to 15 years behind where we were in 2019 as it relates to any of the metrics in the SDGs. And when I say the Indian context, globally, this is the case too. Therefore, if you're not changing the way you operate, if you're not sort of, you know, being open to that and in no way to criticize what's happened in the past, but to say we're not future ready, I think it's really, really important. Exactly. And whose resilience are we building, right? Again, when we, you know, think about outcomes, it's very interesting. And we had this conversation with Jen Sahas, you know, they work with the migrant, res- I mean, there's a lot more they do, but the migrant resilient collaboration. And of course, they're looking at how many migrants sign on for the benefits, right? How many receive the benefits, what the changing economic outcomes, but what they are actually looking to do is measure resilience, And so if you take something like even a health insurance program, you don't actually need it very, very often. But when you need it, it builds your resilience because it stops you from that catastrophic impact that happens when you have health expenditure, right? That was unanticipated. And I don't know who's measured resilience and how that's been done. It's the same as measuring dignity, right? These are very hard measures. So I think we should, as a community, get behind agency and dignity and resilience And when we say outcomes matter, I'm the first person to line up there. But what outcomes are we measuring? And these matter. And it's the same of resilience of the organizations. Can we come up with some metrics of what is a resilient organization, right? I just wish as a funder community, we would start investing in some of these, what we learned from COVID, right? We learned the fault lines and we learned intersectionality matters. But I think in outcomes, what did we learn? And I think it is that resilience matters more than anything else. And then to move forward, it's about agency and empowerment and dignity. I think that's perfect, Yasmin, and a great way to end this conversation. I couldn't agree with you more. I think dignity, empowerment, equity, and resilience is really all we need to focus on. And I think everything else does fall into place. And I think as NGOs, many of us have been focusing on this for years and decades. And I think we need to give that voice to organizations to be able to speak about this again, because that's really what why they started to your point and why people have joined this sector. I think as donors, I think we need to figure out how that is included in our language and more importantly, in our funding agreements. So we're not sort of tying an organization to something which honestly may not be relevant given COVID is there or climate is there or something else is there. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Yasmin. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Industrial Philanthropy Week returns February 26th to March 1st. It'll be a mix of amazing speakers across three cities, Mumbai, Delhi, and Bangalore, and of course, streaming online for all our global participants and supporters. For more information, go to dustrophilanthropyweek.org. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our work, our work of any of the guests, or the Rebuild India Fund, please go to our website, dustra.org forward slash NCE, where we've got show notes, links, and much, much more. 
no cost extension is produced by the amazing Baca Media.